There is no intrinsic value in the product of work. The word I want you to underline in your mind is the word product. There is no intrinsic value in the product of work. The product of work may have utilitarian value, but it has no value in and of itself. An automobile may be valuable in that it helps you to get from point A to point B. That's utilitarian. But there's no worth or value to the automobile in and of itself. See, you have intrinsic worth. An automobile does not. The product of your labor does not have intrinsic value. Now, Peter reminds us of this, and I'm going to quote the verse to you instead of asking you to read it to save time. 2 Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night in which the heavens are going to pass away with a great noise, the elements are going to melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein are going to be burned up. And everything you produce, God says, I am going to burn. I'm going to destroy it systematically. Burn it up. It doesn't matter how well you build or how long or clever you are in the building of it. It's going to burn. Now, gentlemen, the process of work with a proper focus does have value in that God uses it to determine reward in the kingdom of heaven. Let me say that again to you just so we get our minds locked in on this. The process of work with a proper focus does have value in that it is used by God to determine reward in the kingdom of heaven. Passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 3 support this. This is simply illustrative. Paul said, you can lay upon the foundation of Jesus Christ either gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. And on the day of judgment, every man's work is going to be revealed as to what kind of it is. If it's gold, silver, precious stones, it's going to pass through the fire, be purified, and it'll last. If it is wood, hay, and stubble, it'll pass through the fire, get burned. You yourself are going to be saved, but your works are going to be burned up. And how you invest your life here on earth, the Bible says, appreciably affects forever and ever. But the product of your work here on earth does not go to heaven with you. It is going to burn. Now, labor's value, as viewed from the worth of the product, therefore, is equal in importance for all people, irrespective of their vocation. This principle then means that the work of the street sweeper is as significant from God's point of view as the President of the United States. The guy on the lathe out in the factory is as significant in his work as the chairman of the board because the product of both of their labors is going to be burned. This principle is one of the great equalizers of the human race. Your labor may be directed toward creating wealth, such as the farmer in the field or the bricklayer constructing a building. It can be terms of self-improvement, such as developing a skill or learning a language. And these accomplishments receive recognition from man. But the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.8 says, God considers them all dung. All of the accolades and banners and plaques and recognition that's heaped upon you, your earned doctorates, your titles, your positions, all of that is dung in the economy of God. Now, if you don't understand this, if this is not clearly in focus for you, 
you'll end up laboring for the temporal rather than the eternal. And this is the very thing that the Lord Jesus warns against. He says in John 6.27, labor not for the things that perish, but for those things which endure unto everlasting life. If you don't understand this principle, that there is no intrinsic value in the product of your labor, then you will perceive greatness in terms of what you're able to create or accomplish. Then feedback in terms of the accolades of man will encourage this tendency to give your life for the wrong thing. Men, as you labor on behalf of the eternal... It is not the fruit of your labor that produces significance, but the focus of your labor that produces significance. Let me say it again. As you labor for the eternal, it is not the fruit of your labor, but the focus of your labor that makes the difference. This means that two individuals can be doing the same thing, one participating in the program of God while the other is not. Or to say it another way, the man who works down in the factory is engaged in spiritual labor when the focus of his life is the eternal. Conversely, the missionary in the jungles of Ecuador can be engaged in secular work if the focus of his life is becoming the president of the mission. Secular is spiritual when you give your life in exchange for the eternal. The spiritual is secular when the focus of your life is the temporal. This means that the salt of the slave in the salt mine is just as important as in his labor as the pastor or the missionary assuming both have as the focus of their life the kingdom of God and his righteousness. As we mentioned before, there is an unequal distribution of gifts and opportunities in the world. Some people are marginally gifted. Other people are multi-gifted. Some are able to labor in God's vineyard for many years. Some are cut short and labor only for a few years. The two sons of Zebedee, James and John. James is the first of the apostles to die. As far as we can tell, John was the last. There is an unequal opportunity in the lives of those two men for labor in the vineyard. The length of time in the vineyard makes no difference in regard to reward. It has to do with the focus of your life in the time that God gives you. Thus, it is not the amount of fruit that you're able to produce that pleases God, but the degree to which you are faithful to the opportunities that God gives you. All of this is thrown out of focus for you if you think that there is value in the product of your labor. Any questions or comments on that? Yes? Okay, the question is, John chapter 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And again, in Matthew 7, he says, if you don't produce, you get cast away. Um, James, uh, John talks about it also. Let me hold on that until the next principle, because that is the next principle. Not, excuse me, it's not the next principle. It's two away from where we now are. There's one more between them. Any other questions on this? Ben. That's another derivative of his question. Let me hold off on that and we'll come to it. And if I don't adequately answer it when we get to principle number five, then let's bring it back up again because I don't mean to be walking away from it. Okay, let's press. See where we get on the nine principles. Number four. 
Significance is not found in the kind of work you do. Or to put it another way, you don't gain significance from your work. Now, the last half of 20th century America has been marked by an identity crisis. People are in a state of disorientation, looking desperately for a sense of self-worth and purpose. Men, I believe that the entrance of women into the marketplace is a vivid illustration of this. Now, let me just say right up front end, I don't think there's anything unbiblical about women being in the marketplace. I'm not speaking against that. But I think their presence does teach us something. Not infrequently, I hear arguments like, the home doesn't produce an environment conducive to a sense of self-worth. I want more out of life than dishes and diapers. Men have all the fun. It is in, it's in competing in the marketplace that you gain challenge in living. To exercise your gifts in the context of your vocation is to sense significance. And I want to say to you that this is a great lie, one of the great lies of our age. And let me say parenthetically to you, I believe that the reason why women believe this is we believe it. See, men believe that they're significant because of their work. I was attending, for example, a conference let me just say to you parenthetically that I think that, uh, that vocational Christian workers are uniquely fall prey to this trap. I, I, was, I was attending a conference in Kansas City a number of years ago, and this was a Christian conference. And it was, you know, the who's who of your theological bubblegum cards was present. <laughs> they were all there. And... And every night in the plenary session, they had about 25 or 30 men, each night a different group, sitting on the platform before the speaker. And their sole reason for being present on the platform was one by one being introduced. They didn't say anything. They just were introduced by the master of ceremonies. Every one of them was Dr. Somebody. And they were all introduced in terms of superlatives. Dr. Schmatz over here has the fastest growing church in the Southern Baptist denomination. Dr. Bill Schmier, he is the got the largest Sunday school in the Presbyterian church. On and on, one run after another, as they go on down. And all of them gained their significance, at least that was the impression created to the audience by their work. I think if pastors and vocational Christian workers fall prey to this, the next group that is uniquely endowed with this are medical doctors. I'm Dr. So-and-so. Boy, the titles are so important. Significance, gentlemen, is not according to the Bible, to be found in your work. You're not significant because you got your Ph.D., reached the top of the corporate ladder, or any one of a thousand other worldly standards. Remember, Paul calls it dung. You're significant for one reason and one reason only. Who will... Uh, Quote or read for us Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Anybody memorize it? 23 and 24. Gordon, you memorized it. Come on. Show the men how good you are in Scripture memory. <laughs> Gentlemen, I don't want to embarrass him. But our scripture memory fanatic is now looking it up. Huh. Yes. Yes. 
He's got it. Well, you know, the nice thing about all these different translations is you can wing it. (laughs) (laughs) Jeremiah identifies three areas in which we boast as men. Wisdom, power, and wealth. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. Gentlemen, you are significant this afternoon because you know the Lord God and because he knows you. You are significant because your name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You are significant because the Sovereign of the universe has said, I have made you an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You are significant because you are created in His image and you will spend eternity with Him. That is the only reason you are significant. It is not because of your gifts, your abilities, your position, your station in life. None of this makes a bit of difference. Significance is not found in the exercising of your gifts. Gifts differ in intensity as well as in kind. And if you feel that you're significant because you've got a particular gift, then what will happen is you'll begin to compare yourself with other people who have the same gift. And then you fall into what I call the fastest gun in town syndrome. As you sit at the top of the heap, you're nervous, waiting for the day when a guy rides into town who's more gifted in the same gift you've got. And you may be the chairman of the board or the CEO of the company, But every morning you wake up with sweaty armpits thinking to yourself, maybe today is the day when the fastest gun outdraws me and I'm through. Nor is your significance to be found in your vocation. If you look to your vocation for significance, men, and you receive negative full feedback from those with whom you work, you develop a low self-image. Conversely, the greater the recognition of man, the greater your sense of self-worth. And when a person's significance is derived from his vocation, and he loses his vocation, then he loses his reason for living. I know a man who served in the U.S. Congress. And that was the thing that he felt made him significant. What happened was, his district was gerrymandered, and he lost his seat after serving in the Congress for many, many years. And when he lost his seat in Congress, he lost his reason for living, and he just died a frustrated old man. Gail was talking about Joseph earlier today. Joseph was as significant in God's economy when he was in prison as he was when he was in the palace. Moses was as significant in the second 40 years of his life, squeezing sand between his toes as he took care of another man's sheep, as he was in the third 40-year period of his life when he was leading the Exodus. Significance is not to be found in the kind of work you do, nor in the gifts that you have, but rather in being part of the family of God. Any questions or comments on that? Yes.
it, it, is significance necessary for credibility? No, significance is not necessary for credibility. Significance is, credible, is, is necessary for self-worth. You've got to understand your significance. Only the humble, or excuse me, only the secure can be humble. Insecure men cannot be humble. And the reason is they have no well from which to draw humility. See, Jesus said, love your neighbor how? As yourself. I want to suggest to you, you can't love your neighbor without loving yourself. You've got no reservoir. Unless you have a sense of significance and self-worth, there's no way in the world you can function as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that is precisely the reason why our Lord says, rivet it in your relationship with me, which is unchanging, rather than in the world, which is fickled and constantly changing. If you gain your significance, gentlemen, from the world, the world will take you and jerk you all over God's creation by your emotional chain. It'll raise havoc with your life. You root it in the living God, and the winds of change can come and go, and you're steady on course. That's the reason why God wants you to grab a hold of the principle. Does that make sense? Sort of, huh? <laughs> Any other comments or questions? Yes? Well, we, we gain significance as we obey God? No. We do not gain significance as we obey God. We, we gain significance to the degree that we understand that we are gods. You'll never understand who you are until you understand whose you are. If, I, if I'm significant to the degree that I obey the commandments of God, then I'm again jerked around because I'm, a, I'm, I'm erratic in my obedience pattern. So it's purely tied to our relationship with God. It is purely tied to your relationship with God. Importance. Significance is importance. Rod? Okay, the question is, if you're, if you're with an individual, or maybe you are an individual who has a low self-image and doesn't feel you're all that, worth all that much, how do you correct that? You'll know it only to the degree that you know God. Now, one, uh, one little Bible study that I do with men as we spend time together is we work our way through Isaiah chapter 40 through 66. Go through it three times and ask ourselves three questions. Don't do the three questions at the same time going through. It takes three separate trips through. Trip number one, what does God say about himself? And write it out as you go through. Trip number two, what does God say about man? Write it out as you go through. And trip number three, what does God say about his relationship with man? And then write that out. And then that will give you a, an, an appreciation for how you're viewed in God's economy. Chapters 40 through 66. Of Isaiah. What was the third question again, Walt? 
How does God view his relationship with you or with man? In a two-sentence or two-word two or two-something answer is, you are significant. That's what you'll conclude. You are significant. You are of worth. You are important. But you see, if you find out what God says about himself, then you can believe his word when he says you're important. And the reason why you want to look at what God says about man is you'll find out that he understands how depraved and lowly you really are. So that when I come to God, I say, God, I'm such a wretched sinner. I'm so terrible. I am so, I'm such a worm. And God says, well, tell me something new, Henriksen. You mean that's coming as a surprise to you? 52 years and you haven't discovered that before? See, you need to understand that God knows you as you are. But he says, I want to tell you something. You are important. You're exceedingly important. Okay, principle number five. Now, Ben, uh, this and the other gentleman whose name, Wes, is it? Now, this principle hopefully speaks to the question you raised. Principle number five says, you can contribute nothing to the work of God. You can contribute nothing to the work of God. Again and again, God reminds his people that his work was finished from before the foundation of the world. He created it. He set it in motion. He sustains it. It's his from start to finish. You contribute nothing to it. In Matthew chapter 16, in Peter's confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus responds by saying, on the basis of your understanding who I am, let me take you into my confidence and tell you what I'm going to do. I am going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Note in that passage that Jesus does not solicit any response from the disciples. He doesn't say, guys, now let me tell you what's going on. We've got a church to build. And I've invested three years in your life and I'm counting on you. You've got to get the job pulled off. Well, I'm going to die, that's my part, but you've got to work, that's your part, and between the two of us, maybe we can get the church built. See, he didn't say that. He says, I am going to build my church. He didn't say, you and I are going to build our church. He says, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And gentlemen, at any given moment in history, irrespective of how the situation appears to you, Jesus is right on schedule in the building of his church. He's not a minute behind or a minute ahead. He's right on the money. Greenwich Mean Time. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 46, 9 and 10. Who will, who will take that passage for me? We're, we're in that Isaiah passage. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Who will take it? Okay? Psalm 115.5. Who will take that? All right? Excuse me. I said 115.5. Correct that. 115.3. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Ready? Ready. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established, and I will Okay, God says that he has accomplished all of his good pleasure from the beginning. 
Psalm 115.3 says it in a little different way. Yes. It doesn't say that he does whatever we allow him to do. He says he does whatever he pleases. Period. God does whatever he wants. Now men, I want to make a distinction in this principle between participate and contribute. We can participate in the work of God, but we can contribute nothing in the work of God. To contribute is to give something, to furnish or to supply. Webster defines it this way. He says it's to, quote, give a part to a common fund or store, to lend assistance or aid to a common purpose. It has the idea of helping or meeting a need. Men... God has no need. He's all-sufficient, self-sufficient, independent, needless. To participate, on the other hand, has the idea of sharing in something. Again, Webster defines it as, quote, to possess some of the properties, qualities, or attributes of something, to take part in something, to have a part or share in something, end of quote. This word connotes the idea of privilege, the privilege in what he is doing. God in his love and grace gives us the privilege of participating with him if we believe that we can contribute anything to what it is he is doing. To participate... My wife is somewhat of a seamstress. Clothes. A lot of the kids' clothes. My little girl, when she was younger, their old wife, and quote-unquote help her sew sort of blunt-ended scissors, a needle and a thread, and some scraps. Feet of my wife working on those scraps. And she would cut my wife and say, look, Mom, and Mom would ooh and all over it and, and make some suggestions and show her a little bit. And maybe you've got daughters who've done the same thing with your wives. In sewing. But I've got to tell you something. She contributes illustration. Let's say that you're a real estate broker and you got a land deal. Henriksen, I'm going to allow you to participate with me in this land deal. In six months, I'll give you $5 million. Good, I'm going, to, I'm going to have more money than I'll ever be able to spend in my life, and I want to share it with you. Now, don't, don't miss it. Buy in. You're welcome to do it. If you're worried about the $5,000, I'll sign a note to 1000 back. It's a win-win situation. Do you want a slice? And it's just nice. I'll, I'll mortgage my house over that one. So you get the 5000 I look at the check and I smile and I say, aren't you glad I helped you put the D incredulously? And you say, you meathead. You allowed me the privilege of participable sum of money. Now men, God is at work in its nature. It is infinitely greater than his work of... And he says, this deal is so good, so unbelievably good, of a life filled with true significance, huh? You can be part of my plan, part of my deal. If we say, boy, would we ever. But men, as we participate with God, making a contribution. We contribute nothing to God. Or 19, that's what he's telling us to do, to uh, participate. Matthew, the Great Commission, made with him. That is correct. This idea, in Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Who, Esther 4, 13 and 14. Esther's queen. Haman, the prime minister, has devised a plot whereby the Jews will be up before the king and get the thing straightened out. Esther says, can't do it. His response to her, listen, sweetie pie, this is Henriksen translation. Listen to way. And secondly, don't deceive yourself into believing that the fate is this time. The only question, therefore, open to you is whether or not you want to get involved. God says, 
dealer's choice. I'll just simply choose somebody else. Then you'll do three things. Number one, I know a man who came to me and he said, Hendrickson, I'm going to divorce my wife. And friends, she resists everything that has to do with my spiritual walk. It is really important. And because of it, he's willing to sacrifice the commandments of God to you. That there are a lot of men in the church of Jesus Christ who think just like that. If you believe that you can actually contribute something to the work of God, invariably you will flirt with the commandments of God in an endeavor to make your contribution. The same thing is seen in Christian organizations, whether that is the local church or whether that is the parachurch or mission sending agencies, it makes no difference. If if an organization believes that it can make a contribution to the work of God, then it will consider its contribution of primary importance and it will end up using people rather than ministering to them. Show me an organization. I don't care what its nature. Show me an organization, gentlemen, who believes that it can make a contribution to the work of God and I'll show you an organization which comes into existence for the purpose of building men of God and ends up using men of God to build the organization. You can contribute nothing to the work of God. Any questions or comments on that? Classic. I can't. I can't remember, but it's the one where, where God said, you know, uh, because it didn't have somebody would stand in the gap. Therefore, I destroyed him. And it was obviously not His perfect will to destroy him. It was obviously His will for someone to have stood in the gap. Yeah. The question is asked about a passage like Ezekiel twenty-two thirty, where God says, "And I sought for a man from among them that should stand in the gap before me before the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none." Another passage is Jesus in the, the Gospel of Matthew where he stands in Jerusalem. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you known to myself as a hand gathers her chicks, but ye would not. Men, here is another one of the tensions that are in the Bible. Let me, let me give you three illustrations of its presence. Or maybe give you two, just for short time. Okay. In the Bible tells us that Jesus died for the sins of the world from before the foundations of the world. Is that not true? Then was God playing with Adam in the garden when he made him sinless and held him responsible for his sin? And we say no. No, he was not. Adam was responsible. There was no reason in the world why Adam had to fall. And yet, God not only knew he was going to fall, but planned for his fall before the fall took place. Now, the reason why that's a tension is the only way you can know something in the future is if you planned it. If I say to you, what are you going to get your wife for Christmas? And you say to me, I'm getting her a gold necklace. I can go to your wife and I can say to her, I know what you're going to get for Christmas, but I had nothing to do with it. I go to my wife and say to her, I know what I'm going to get you for Christmas. There's only one reason in the world why I know that. And that's because I planned it. And in our mind, we conclude that there's only one way in the world that God could fore 
plan the death of the Lord Jesus from before the foundations of the world. And that is because he planned the fall of Adam. So we've got to tension that. We can say to ourselves, and that removes the responsibility from Adam. We say, no, it doesn't remove the responsibility at all from Adam. That's a tension. And there's no way you can walk around that tension. There's no fancy way to word that that eliminates that tension. Second tension. When the Lord Jesus came to earth, he presented the gospel, excuse me, he presented the kingdom to the nation of Israel. He offered the kingdom to them. And they turned it down. And he went to the cross. And we say to ourselves, what would have happened if Israel had decided not to turn it down? It's the same kind of question as asking, what would have happened if Adam decided not to eat of the fruit? The fact of the matter is, they did turn it down. He did eat of the fruit. And Jesus knew it before it happened. And so even before they turned down the kingdom, he was talking about the cross. There's a tension there. And that's the tension you find in Ezekiel 22.30 and other passages. So God says, The arm of the Lord is not shortened that he cannot save, neither is ear heavy that he cannot hear, but your iniquities are separated between you and God, and your sins have hit his face from you so that he will not hear. See, the monkey's on your back. See, that responsibility is always there, but the responsibility, gentlemen, is never a responsibility of contribution. It is always a responsibility of participation. God is not standing in the wings of history, breathlessly waiting for you to make your contribution so he can get on with the building of his church. Any other comments or questions on this? Guys, I know this is a marathon for you. And uh, according to my watch, we're in the last lap. We can, we can abort it right here if you'd like. Otherwise, we can go into the principles on leisure. What is your good pleasure? You want to? Well, that may not speak for all of you. So if, if you do want to leave, I want you to feel very comfortable. My... Uh, my self-image is not wrapped up in you staying. I will be offended if you go. <laughs> but I'll get over it. I'll pout a little bit, cry a little, but I'll, I'll get over it. Let's talk about leisure. In one sense, leisure is different than rest. Leisure is what, a, what gives a person rest. But... What is leisure for one may be work for another. For example, mowing the lawn may be leisure for one person and work may be even his vocation for another person. So leisure and work technically are different words. Leisure tends to turn into work when one feels there's something he needs to accomplish. That's the reason why a lot of men look to their hobbies as work. What turned out, or what started to be leisure, ends up being work. Now, these differences do exist. But I think that if we keep them in mind, they'll end up sidetracking us in what I want to accomplish. Therefore, for the sake of these principles, I'm going to consider work and leisure as synonyms. I understand they're not, but just for the sake of semantics, I'm going to call them synonyms as we move through this section. All right? Now, the Bible in general, and the New Testament in particular, does not say much about rest or leisure. In the Genesis account of creation, God rested the seventh day. But note, men, note that from Adam to Moses, there is no mention of rest or leisure. No mention of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is instituted by God on the Exodus. Exodus chapter 16, to be specific, when he began to give the manna. Six days you gather the manna, the seventh you don't. In Exodus chapter 20, he circles around and includes it in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the Sabbath, 
the seventh is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God, in it thou shalt not work. For Moses to Christ, the Sabbath observance became an important issue in the nation of Israel, with dire consequences meted out to those who failed to obey it. But note that from the death of the Lord Jesus on, there is no commandment to the effect that God's people should rest, or that they should set aside one day as special over another. Let me say it again to you. From Christ on, we revert back to the time from Adam to Moses, where there is no command to the effect that we ought to rest, or that one day is more important than another. In Romans 14, Paul says, one man esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let everybody be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regards the day, regards it to the Lord. He that regards not to the day, to the Lord, he doth not regard it. Theater's choice again. Up to you. Romans chapter 14, first paragraph. Paul says the same thing in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in regard to food or drink or with regard to the festival or new moon or Sabbath day all of which are a shadow of the things to come, the body being Christ. Now you know and I know that there are certain parts of the Church of Jesus Christ that argue that the Ten Commandments are in effect today, including the Fourth Commandment regarding the Sabbath. And I don't want to argue regarding that. But even if it's accepted that the Fourth Commandment is applicable for the New Testament, in the form of the Lord's Day, still, I want to point out to you, it leaves unanswered such questions as, A, how many hours a day should you work? B, how many days a year should you take off? C, when, if ever, should you retire? These all remain unanswered questions. To further complicate the problem, there's no mention of how free time ought to be spent. Paul says in Ephesians 5.16, redeem the time for the days are evil, but he doesn't tell you how that time ought to be redeemed. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.13 that women should not be idle, but what does not being idle look like? Thus, there's more to say about not abusing rest than there is about what to do with rest. One other passage I want to draw by way of introduction and that is Ephesians chapter 4, the great chapter on rest. But that chapter is talking about unbroken fellowship with God on a day-by-day -day basis. It's not talking about the observance of a particular day or how to handle leisure time. Now, there are mentioned in the New Testament different examples of people resting, but no command to the effect that we ought to emulate them. Now, although the evidence for leisure and rest is far skimpier, particularly in the New Testament, than the issue on work, there nonetheless are principles that we can't put into practice. There are four that I've listed here. I want to mention them to you just for your consideration. Again, if we don't get through them, uh, in the last minute or two, I'll give you whatever remains. Leisure is not mandated by God in the New Testament. There is no command to rest in the New Testament. Now, the body wears out and demands leisure. The New Testament implies that it understands this and only responds with a caution not to excess. Redeem the time. Now, some people fear rest or leisure. Some people long for it. Generally speaking, young men are afraid of it. Old men can hardly wait for it. But there are exceptions to that too. The point I want to make here with this first principle is in the final analysis, it's an issue of stewardship. There will always remain a tension between work and leisure. That is, how much time should I spend working as opposed to how much time I should spend in leisure? Generally speaking, in the United States, we've decided that it's a 40-hour a week. That's very arbitrary. There's nothing in the Bible that would suggest that that ought is more sanctified 
than 50 or 60 or 20 or 10. Therefore, in the final analysis, it becomes a question between you and the Lord your God. Or to put it another way, men, the absence of a New Testament mandate regarding leisure means that you are dependent upon God to be led by the Spirit of God in this matter. And you cannot legislate for other people because, as Gail pointed out, that leads to legalism. Any questions or comments on that? Yes, Don. Real loud, please. Exactly right. Yes. Okay, the question is, what do we do with the argument that the Sabbath was instituted before a law? Let's take that one first. Creation was instituted before law. But it doesn't tell us where to create. There's nothing in the book of Genesis that would lead us to believe that God wants us to emulate him in rest. The statement in Genesis chapter 2 is, He rested the seventh day. It does not say that we were to rest the seventh day. And there's nothing in the life of the people following, including the patriarchs, that will lead us to believe that they did rest the seventh. Now, they may have. But if they did, the Spirit of God saw fit to stay silent on the subject. Conversely, or not conversely, but also note that there is no commandment to that effect in the New Testament. And there are men who argue that Romans 14 and Colossians 2, 16, 17 refer to special days and Sabbaths other than the one out of seven. That is conjecture. And even if you grant it, you still leave Avoid regarding a commandment to the effect that there one ought, that one ought to be kept. So I'm not arguing with you that you should not observe one out of seven. I'm simply saying to you, it's not mandated. Anyway, you read the New Testament, you've got to agree with me that the command isn't present. Now you may feel you're obligated to, but you don't obligate it to because of what the New Testament says. Because the New Testament does not say. The closest it comes to it is a positive command stated negatively in Hebrews 10.25 where he says, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as a manner of some is. Which is a negative way of saying, don't forget to assemble. But where, when, how often, under what conditions, he does not elaborate. Now, Ben, the second question that you had had to do with the passage in Mark chapter 2 where he says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. To argue that God made the Sabbath for man does not argue that man ought to keep the Sabbath in perpetuity. Forever and ever, without stopping. 
God could easily have said, and in fact did say, not in these words, I brought sacrifice into existence for you, not for me. I didn't ask you to sacrifice because I love the smell of it. It's for you. But that doesn't mean that we therefore sacrifice forever. Any other questions or comments? Okay, next principle. Leisure can be an act of worship. And we're running short of time, so I'm going to just call your attention to a couple of passages. Leviticus 16, 29-34. This deals with leisure can be an act of worship. It's not necessarily an act, but it can be. Leviticus 16, 19-34. This is the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And God in this passage calls for a holy convocation in which nobody works. It is a holy Sabbath set aside for worship. The next passage I want to draw to your attention, and you can look it up and read it later, Deuteronomy 14, 22-26. Interesting passage. Deuteronomy 14, 22-26 speaks of a second tithe. Forget the Hendrickson translation. This is what he says. Once a year, I want you to tithe. Take 10% of everything you make that year and go up to the temple and blow it on yourself. Whatever thy soul lusteth after, whether it's wine or strong drink or grain or good meat, whatever it is you enjoy, go and spend the 10%, eat and enjoy it until it's gone and then go home. That thou mayest learn to fear the Lord thy God. Always. Now, if you think that I have um, embellished the passage, read it for yourself and see if it's not there. Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 26. Now, this isn't to suggest that believers are obligated to keep these Old Testament laws today. They are, however, illustrative of how God feels about leisure. Regarding wealth, gentlemen, there are two things you've got to remember. Or I should put it this way. Two things God hates and two things God loves. He hates hoarding and stinginess. He loves extravagance and generosity. He hates the first two because they're expressions of independence. He loves the first, the latter two because they're expressions of dependence. And the reason why in Deuteronomy God says, I want you to blow 10% in an act of extravagance is that you will learn to fear the Lord your God always. Men, when you spend it, you don't have it. And when you don't have it, you've got to turn to God to get it. When you've got it and you hoard it, then you can be independent from God. He loves the one and he hates the other. Now, with society becoming increasingly materialistic, the tendency is always to push the pendulum in the opposite direction. And therefore, there are many in the body of Christ that would argue that we should marry Christianity with a socialistic philosophy. The Bible teaches that we're not to feel guilty if we spend on ourselves what God has given to us as an act of worship. Obviously, balance is needed here. But spending your resources in pursuit of leisure is not wrong in and of itself. Your work, your leisure, your gifts, your resources, they're all a gift from God. Therefore, we fall back to the question of stewardship. And men, let me remind you that it is fun to play poker with another man's chips. It produces sweaty armpits to play poker with your own. And there will always be people standing in the wings of your life telling you how to, you, you ought to invest your leisure, your work, your resources, and your gifts. But God says, the onus is on you. I hold you responsible. And all these people who are filled with counsel will be gone when God holds you accountable for how you did it. Never forget that. we got five minutes. Let me give you the other two. 
Leisure contributes no more or less than work in the economy of God. Leisure contributes no more or less than work in the economy of God. Now, men, this is simply the flip side of principles three through five. Leisure is valid because Christians can't produce anything of significance for God. The product of their labor has no intrinsic value. They can do nothing to contribute to the work of God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are beautiful illustrations of this. Take a look at Isaac. I invite you to tell me one thing of significance he did in his life. He was a big, fat zero. He had a lousy marriage, did a fouled-up job in the raising raising of his kids. He was a zero. Even Abraham. He built no cities. He conquered no lands. He wrote no books. It says of Abraham... Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. Gentlemen, you can believe God in a state of leisure as easily as in a state of work. The man or woman who feels that work is more important than than leisure then becomes frustrated when denied the chance to work. Furthermore, he'll become motivated to work much, even to the detriment of other priorities. I think this is a subtle trap that Christian workers fall into. Have you ever heard the statement, PK? Who can tell me what a PK is? Preacher's kid. Let me ask you. In your mind, as you hear that ring, is that a good word or a bad word? Bad word. Have anybody ever heard it as a good connotation? I never have. It is, a, it is a word of derision. He's a PK. What does he mean by that? The kid's a derelict, a reprobate. He's apostate. Why, how does that happen? Why is it that people who are in my vocation have such a lousy track record with their kids? I'll tell you why. At least one of the reasons is because we are so preoccupied with the contribution that we feel we're making for the kingdom of God, we've got no time for our kids. And we don't believe, axiom number seven, that leisure contributes exactly the same amount as work in the economy of God. Nothing. Boy, watch that, man. Watch that. Don't feel guilty when God gives you Leisure. Now, I see a hand. I've got two minutes, and I've got to close it off. Let me give you principle number nine. Leisure is not related to finances. Gentlemen, leisure is a gift of God and not the fruit of financial gain. If everything you've got is a gift from God, and that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7 and elsewhere... then you're not rewarded with leisure by financial gain. Let me say it to you this way. Those born into wealth have no more right to leisure than those born into poverty. The rich and the poor alike are responsible before God for the stewardship of their time and their money. Now, I want to tell you, this cuts contrary to how we all think. If you see a man who is poor, the first question you ask him is, are you working? Isn't that right? But show me a man who has got unbelievable wealth and we never challenge his leisure. You may have a a guy here in Covington that's worth five, six million dollars and he spends his time out on the yacht traveling around the world, taking cruises on the golf course, roaming around in his Learjet, and nobody challenges his right to that. Is that not true? But if the guy is poor, we say, I challenge your right to leisure. Go to work. Is that not true? And somehow we feel that the men and women with wealth 
have a right to leisure that the poor man does not have. And I want to suggest to you that's unbiblical thinking. Both the poor and the rich are responsible before God regarding their stewardship of their work, of their leisure, of their gifts, of their wealth. Leisure is not related to finances. I beg your pardon? The converse of that is true, too. What is the converse? Well, uh, a lot of people resent wealthy people having excessive leisure or taking advantage of excessive leisure like uh, there's something wrong with that or they look down on that. It's laziness or slothfulness. But what we're saying, what you're saying here is no, that's not in the eyes of God necessarily. Well, everybody's commanded to work. How much is left to you? But it should not be determined by finances. You don't have the right to retire when you can afford it. And just as there is nothing magical about 40 hours a week, there is nothing biblical about age 65. Well, men, it's been fun being with you. I just got one word of counsel to you. Good luck. <laughs>